0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another segment of our Mental Health Moments here on a Thursday in March of 2023. So welcome to everyone. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We have a really full agenda today, lots to talk about, lots to address. So if you've been on with us the last couple of months, you know that we have been focusing on addiction in our community. And today we are going to do part three of that series, and we're actually going to focus on addictive behaviors. And when we think about it, this is really a different realm because when something is socially acceptable or it's legal, you know, whether it be social media or overeating or playing the lottery, it has a different feel to it than, than maybe some of the other addictions that we have addressed previously. So I have a great panel of experts today to join us to help us discuss this topic. And just so our audience learns a little bit more about them, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask them to introduce themselves uh, tell us a little bit about uh, their current practice and maybe how they ended up in the place they are today, working with um, addictive behaviors. So Charles, I will go ahead and kick it off with you.
1: Yes. Yeah, so my name is Charles Latour. I typically have been on these uh, programs uh, over the course of the last couple of years. And I am a, a therapist here at Ballin, And I've been here for over four years now. And one th- I guess one thing on for this one, I am not an addiction specialist. So um, I'm glad we have other people on today who are more of that. Uh, not that I don't work with addictions or have background in working with addictions, but certainly there's things that are more specifically in, in my areas of preference. Um, one is working with families or people whose family members struggle with addictions. but more of my work is in individual anxiety, depression, uh, other uh, mental health related issues. And also, um, I work with a lot of relationships, marriage, relationships, uh, probably one of my uh, favorite areas of work right now. so. It's a little bit of a um, clinical background for me.
0: All right, thanks so much, Charles. We appreciate that. And yes, Charles has been here since day one. He is our regular uh, therapist that we have on the segment. So we've, we've learned so much from Charles in the years we've been doing this. So thank you, Charles. Um, I'm gonna move over next to Bonnie. So Dr. Bonnie Nussbaum, so happy to have you with us today.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited about this. I'm probably going to put a little different spin on things than is the typical approach. I've always been kind of outside of the box. So I'm a clinical psychologist and holistic coach based in Wisconsin. Um, most of my clientele are actually on the coasts, but I do have people that I work with locally, mostly via zoom. Um and one of the reasons I was excited about this topic was I've kind of gone through starting my practice or my, my clinical career in bigger organizations and finding that kind of pretty restrictive um, and dealing with insurance companies pretty restrictive um, not allowed to do some of the things that clinically I thought would be helpful to people so At one point, I started my own outpatient mental health clinic, Harbor Community Psychological Associates, was around for 16 years, sold it to someone who had a whole lot more energy and time than I did, and uh, she's done well with things. Um, But then I retooled as a holistic coach, much more latitude to be able to do what I feel is in someone's best interest, work much more as a team with somebody, as opposed to, I'm the doctor gonna hand down, here's what you gotta do you don't know you the best I know you the best kind of stuff so I really wanted to get away from that whole patriarchal kind of approach and so currently I'm um, doing holistic coaching love what I do Um, many of my over the course of my process have been people who've experienced trauma and um, addictions oftentimes go along with trauma so to me Many times I frame the addiction as a symptom. It's not really the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. And if we don't dig back further and and address the problem, the symptom probably isn't going to go away or stay away. So that's kind of where I'm coming from.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Bonnie. And I I just have to add that I had met Bonnie many, many years ago. When I was uh, coaching for Weight Watchers and Bonnie always just had these amazingly insightful things to share. And that was really one of, I think, our first revelations that when people were having eating disorders and eating struggles, it was something way more than, hey, I like French fries or or that type of thing. So I've been been gifted to be connected to Bonnie over the years. So, so glad to have you with us, Bonnie. So thank you. And Mark, we'll pass
3: it off to you. Let me say that uh, I really agree with Bonnie. I believe in dealing with the problem and not the symptom, uh, which I find happens way too often. Um, I'm Mark Ditloff. Um, I'm working out of the O'Connell, uh Hospital at this point in time. I moved back to Wisconsin from Texas after living there for 14 years last May. And I've been working with Bellin since December. Um, I started out working with juvenile delinquents and from there, I moved to adolescent sex offenders and then to adult sex offenders, to domestic violence, and then finally to drug and alcohol uh, addiction issues. So I've kind of worked with the addiction perspective from just about every area, uh, and I'm in the process of writing a book about that. Cool.
0: That's great, Mark. Well, thank you for sharing, and, and thank you for taking your time to be with us today. So the first thing I just kind of wanted to dive into is the idea of um, I think a lot of in my thought process, a lot of our behaviors are connected to the feeling that we get from that behavior. So I have to think about people may buy a car based on how it makes them feel they go through the line at Starbucks, even though it's expensive because of the way it makes them feel, you know, they have that way of making you feel special and cared for and. And all those types of things. So, how does how do you think that that ties into the uh, the idea of these addictive behaviors? And uh, Charles, we'll we'll start with you.
1: Well, I think it's it's a great start because part of anything in the way of addictive behavior is it starts as part of the pleasure principle. That how does it feel? And um, the the activation of the pleasure part of our brain and our being gets rewarded i mean our whole evolutionary system part of survival is seeking pleasure and uh whatever makes us feel good we typically want more of it and um part of the reason i thought this our progression has been a, a nice one is we started with talking about addictions that are things in life that we could do without, but created pleasure for us, um, the illicit substances. So whether it's cocaine, heroin, uh, marijuana, whatever it might be, there isn't anybody on the planet who physically can't live without heroin. Right. Uh, or cocaine. Uh, but there's behavioral things like food, um, like internet, like social media, things that are, we probably have some relationship with it. And we can't just not have it in our lives anymore. So if there is an addictive process that we're experiencing with it, it makes it more difficult to navigate our experience through it. So, and, and food is probably the number one of all that. Okay. We may have some food addictions, but it's not that we could say, we're never going to use it again, so we can get pleasure from food. We could get pleasure from gambling. And as I pointed out last time, just by way of quick review, the way our Physiology is always trying to reach some homeostatic level and balance the pleasure and pain reward process and physiology for us happens to be located in the exact same place. So we have this thing where we get pleasure. It feels great. We want more of it, but because the body is always seeking homeostasis somewhere the the balance goes on the other side of the the teeter-totter where we get those pain gremlins to come in saying no too much of that not a good thing everything in moderation so we go back to the pain side and always trying to get back to balance but we want more of that that gave us the pleasure so we'll go and get more and more which means the negative side, the pain side is getting more and more, which intensifies this whole process to the point that we go into something that researchers call dopamine deficit. When there's too much of this, we'll seek even more of this. And until that gets to some homeostatic balance of that uh, seesaw that we have in our physiology, Things feel out of sync, Fe- things feel uncomfortable and we seek more and more and more. So that's in a way why most of these addictions start with that pleasure process and why it intensifies over time to the point where it can physiologically get out of control for us. And sometimes that's when we could find that we're in an addictive process.
2: Well, I'll just kinda yep, I'll just kind of dovetail on what Charles is saying there. I also see among the people I'm working with at this point a whole lot of people avoiding life. Life has gotten very intense, very difficult, very burdensome. We exacerbate that oftentimes with the social media piece um there's a huge addictive quality to using social media and people will um the question i like to ask people when i'm when i'm working with somebody is what are you pretending not to know what are you pretending not to know and oftentimes they'll get the sheepish look on their face and and they feel safe enough with me to be able to say yeah i'm spending six seven eight hours a day on facebook that's honest okay and and my thing is I don't want to yank a support out from under somebody. So I'm not going to say, cut yourself off of Facebook. I'm going to say, let's peel back this Facebook problem and let's see what's really the problem underneath there. I'm overwhelmed in my life. I'm unhappy in my marriage. My job stinks. And by the time I get home, I have no energy left for anything. I just want to escape. Calgon, take me away. Um, Let's address that first. And then we'll begin dismantling those things that you've been using to shore up your life that really aren't helping you a whole lot.
0: You know, and I remember us talking a little bit um, back in the day at Weight Watchers, too, that if you're if you're going for if you're using something for comfort, you obviously need to be comforted. You need to find something else that does that, that's isn't playing a harmful role in your life whether it be gambling or overeating or whatever you you have to find a different way to do that
2: yes and i also think we we have to let people know to begin with whatever you pick as your replacement is not going to work as well as what you've already gotten established hang with it for a while
3: and for me that's where it all starts okay um, is emotional dysregulation um my clients generally talk about five feelings that they want to avoid and they'll avoid it at almost all cost frustrated confused lonely hurt scared and ashamed and we've become a culture that doesn't know how to process emotions and so what happens is we turn to drugs and alcohol or we turn to some kind of behavioral addiction to make because it releases dopamine in the brain it makes us feel better so the whole idea that they start is to avoid the feelings and make themselves feel better with some type of behavior That will release the dopamine
2: bingo yep absolutely
0: so when we talk about that dopamine addiction then what um obviously these are the things that some of the unhealthy things that bring us dopamine what what are the healthy things that that bring us that dopamine
3: well actually you can can create anything that, that will release dopamine so if you enjoy, if you play with your child and you enjoy playing with it, you probably got what's referred to as a dopamine squirt at that point in time. Which not only makes you feel good, but also makes you want to go back and do it
2: again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Love, physical activity, being in nature. I mean, there's all, there's, again, though, the the initial piece that I think we got to remind people of is it isn't going to work as well. So I'm, I have, I have one person who I, I still laugh with her about this. <laughs> where i had sent her out to buy a kit a crafting kit as a way to kind of calm her brain etc she called it that damn crafting kit every time you know how far how far are you on your damn crafting kit kathy and but over time that that you know she was hooking rugs over time hooking rugs began to equal calm but it took time
0: yeah,
2: so
3: there's actually a, a hierarchy of things that release dopamine. And believe it or not drugs and alcohol rank number 1 on the hierarchy. So there's a reason we call a happy hour. You know, you don't like how you feel. You go have a couple of drinks. You feel better. But number 2, believe it or not, is music uh, number 3 is working out number 4 is sex. So, there are some positive things, but you can also turn those into compulsions or behavioral addictions as well.
0: How do you know the difference between like that immediate change and then where something is really working and you're really working towards that long-term change? So this is something, again, we talked a lot about when I was back in Weight Watchers. We can give people any kind of diet, right? And we can say, okay, do this, don't do this, count this, add up this. And they might do that for a period of time, but what's the difference in them doing that and then truly getting to a place where they really have changed something in their life enough, that it starts
3: to feel natural. <laughs> well, I think that goes back to what Bonnie was talking about the difference between dealing with the symptom and the problem. So, the, the problem may be the weight, but the, what is the, what is the real issue behind that? Uh, it's the same thing with sex offenders. It's the same thing with domestic violence and other types of behavioral addictions. Is there's, there's a reason that people do the things that they do. They are avoiding certain feelings for a reason, so we have to deal with that particular issue.
2: Well, you know, just dovetailing on that, when Mark was talking, because I worked with adolescent sex offenders also, they were a great population to work with because they weren't as calcified in the behaviors yet, but they were a difficult population to work with because oftentimes they were still in a home and in a home that had structures and behaviors and patterns that were going to support the old behavior and disempower the new stuff we were trying to instill in them so yeah it, again too if people have people who can support them that's that can be huge one, you know when mark when mark mentioned loneliness that's one that i really have on my radar screen right now because over one-third of adults aged 45 or older are classifying themselves as lonely that is huge that is absolutely huge we need, to, we need to be addressing that issue.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll talk about something you're working on um, in a little bit, Bonnie. Yeah, I definitely want to br- bring that up and let our audience know about that. So, um, Mark, I know that you had wanted to share, you had a model um, on addiction behaviors that you wanted to share with us. So I will let you go ahead and bring that up. And hopefully our technology is cooperating with us today. We had, uh, maybe some of you were with us this morning. We had an in person uh, kickoff for the bell and run corporate challenge uh, in person, which was really a treat because we haven't done that in a while. So, um, and we had some technology issues, of course, so I'm hoping that they are done for the day and it looks like beautiful mark. You are you are good to go.
3: So, because of my work with with offenders and, and with domestic violence perpetrators and with drug and alcohol. I kind of have a unique perspective um, in working with all of those and they really. And my, my drug and alcohol clients really hated it when I would say this, but they all really share core issues. The issues that they have are often the same and they start with the feelings on, on the left. And like I said, those are the, f- the 5, 6 feelings that people avoid um, from my experience. Um, At that point in time, they often turn to anger and anger is originally designed to protect you. It you know, it's located in the amygdala. Um, and we're not worried about that type of anger. We're worried about the 2nd type, which I refer to as higher brain anger. And higher brain anger, I refer to as the incredible Hulk syndrome. Give me what I want or you're not going to like what happens. And so people will use intimidation to try and get what they want at this point in time. It's really all about power and control. Um. And when that doesn't work, they move on to the next area, which is aggression, and that's an action. Aggression is what gets people in trouble. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll skip the first three types of aggression, but the fourth one is what we're talking about today: is self-abuse, and that can fall into drugs and alcohol, or what I would refer to as addictions, deg- uh, compulsions, or behavioral addictions. Um, again, to me, this is all about the release of dopamine to make them feel better temporarily, and so they get that dopamine release. They go home. They go to bed they wake up the next morning you know um and they're right back where they started they still haven't processed those feelings
2: or they're in a worse place because now they've engaged in a bunch of terrible behavior and the shame and confusion hurt all that stuff is escalated
3: absolutely the the, the secondary shame that comes after the fact of making yourself feel better so they do end up in an even worse position
2: yes yes i just gambled my whole paycheck yesterday how could i have done that what's wrong with me blah blah
3: Yeah, so I tell people, this is what doesn't work, but this is what our culture teaches us to do is to look outside of ourselves to feel better. We don't go within, we don't take a look at the emotions and we do not don't talk. We don't talk about what's going on inside of us. Um, Daniel Siegel out at UCLA does research. And he basically says that, you know, we need to stop teaching, not stop teaching, but we need to include. um, Self evaluation as as a means of, of something that's being taught at schools at this point in time. Um, 1 of the things I want to point out is if you are are a child of an alcoholic, or somebody who has a a behavioral addiction that that by definition means that they're emotionally dysregulated. They haven't learned how to process their emotions. So how can they possibly teach that to their children? And so. There
2: There was an interesting study that I read a while ago that I went, are you kidding me? But the, the, the. The subjects in the study, it was mostly adult men and women were asked. Would you, you you have a choice right now. You can spend one hour in a room with yourself in silence, or you can experience an electric shock. The majority chose the shock. I was astounded and appalled. I'm like, oh my God, we can't even sit with ourselves and just be. So we have to teach people, how do you, how do you be with your feelings? How do you, how do you sit down with them? How do you inhabit them and let them. Teach you what they're there to teach you. It's like taking the battery out of the wailing smoke alarm. It's wailing for a reason. Let's figure it out.
0: Charles, are you uh, back with us? I think we're having some technical issues there. I guess I spoke too soon about our technical things today.
1: No, I'm back on all good. Okay, Great. I agree with Bonnie. That study first amazed me. But when I when I really thought about it and, and had seen the consistency of this in people's hands and what they do, and in a way, when you think about it, becomes not so surprising as that. Um, in fact, I was talking with someone, a professor uh, just over the weekend, and he had said that the most amazing thing about class is that it seems like people don't even talk to each other. As soon as the class is over, everybody, it's like immediately in sync, everybody in the class stands up, does this, and walks out and rarely anybody even talks to each other. Their face goes down, their thumbs start going, and it's, it's just really amazing. And in a way, maybe dovetailing with a couple things that I didn't get to say earlier that I wanted to chime in on is that we've talked about addiction out of some of the lens of a feeling or emotion or something that isn't dealt with. But right now, a lot of the addiction information is that our lives are almost so easy that we haven't had to do some of the things that would bring us pleasure in the past, uh, from an evolutionary lens, uh, you are asking Linda, what gives us, what brings dopamine hundreds of thousands of years ago, dopamine would come from going and getting our dinner for tonight, the hunting and gathering that we would have to do that great brought us this great dopamine rush and pleasure. Now, almost anything we will ever need, we can get with this in a couch and never have to leave it and have to find other mechanisms for that dopamine to come up. And now we get it through these things. We get it through Netflix. We get it through gambling. We get it through some of these other means that maybe a few years ago we never even thought would be addictive. But now they become that. So, just really amazing stuff. And uh, appreciate the commentary from both of you along the way. So, um, but anyway, those are some of my reflections that I wasn't able to chime in earlier.
2: Well, and with regard to that, you know, one of the things that I think about is people don't so much anymore have that sense of, Hi, I'm Bonnie and I can do difficult things. We don't have that as a, as a kind of a banner for ourselves. And, um, actually Tony Robbins talks about it being sort of a loop that when a group of people go through significant difficulty, they become strong oftentimes and then they, they tend to raise a group that doesn't go through significant difficulty and then they have a harder time being parents etc etc keeping a job and then they raise kids who actually do go through harder times and you get the cycle that goes around there's something to be said for having to struggle there's something to be said for having to find a way through to find a way make a way to have to challenge yourself in ways and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people really go for the sports stuff and the physical, it's a challenge. It's its challenging themselves to to see, yes, I can do this. I'm Joe Blow and I hiked Mount Everest.
3: And I would agree. So many of the adolescents I see these days are coming to see me because they, they, they've never been allowed to be uncomfortable. And so the moment they feel uncomfortable, they think there's something wrong and they don't know how to deal with it.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was actually doing a presentation earlier in the week, and one of the messages was, um, you know, because I love this phrase, Bonnie, and you made me think of it people who struggle together have stronger connections than people who are just content, right? We need that struggle, but to get better, we have to struggle. We have to be able to stretch. If we stay where we are, so this is to a high school group of uh, athletes. And the idea that I asked everybody, if you're a freshman, do you want to be as good when you're a senior as you are right now or better? Everybody said better. If you are a senior right now, are you better than were you a freshman? Yeah, I'm better. What made that is I allowed myself to be uncomfortable. So getting on uncom- getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is part of the journey. If we're not stretching, we're not growing. And you know, all of the literature we know tells us we actually feel best when we're learning, growing and stretching, but so much of life has helped us to avoid that rather than have more of it. There's one other thing I want to say and that, um, maybe one of the things I did want to chime in on earlier, but um, of what we were saying, but there's this uh, concept called um, hormesis which is the opposite of what we've been talking about in this balance uh, homeostatic equilibrium and this idea that we could actually get dopamine and pleasure starting with the ill conse- the, the ill effect and the pain side first and most of the things we're talking about when we go there feeds and that's like exercise reading a difficult book writing a difficult paragraph, starting our journey towards dopamine on the pain side. And then in a very healthy way, bringing about that, oh my gosh, you know, I just read that really difficult book, or I really wrote that difficult paper, or I just had that unbelievable difficult workout. And then to balance that dopamine jumps on, on the other side, and pay, the pleasure is then the reward rather than the way I described it earlier. So when we're doing these things that are stretching and focus, we're actually feeling great. And that is exactly why.
2: I think, too, with that, it's important that we're aware. We we, we don't take our own bullshit. Let's put it that way, that, that we're so good at. Deluding ourselves that I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm good. Don't worry about me, you know, that we need we need to train people better. How to self evaluate, because 1 of the things that I've seen with some people with regard to what Charles was just talking about. Is you can allow that to run amok. view workaholism, the person who only gets their fix from working, working, working. There isn't the balance there. I've worked with veterans who. If their combat veterans got really got a high off of being at risk every day and when they came back i had several that were court ordered because they engaged in very risky behaviors driving 100 miles an hour through green bay um trying to find that buzz again you know there was nothing that was putting them at that same kind of risk to, to get the adrenaline going and they felt pretty dead So they were doing engaging in behaviors that really were not healthy so we need to have we need to teach people how how do i balance this how do i assess myself well let me say
1: mark i'm really curious what you have to say too because there's this concept that i know of in the addiction world and it's called uh radical honesty uh being totally honest with yourself and Uh, What you were saying, Bonnie, really made me think of this. And there's this concept of when we're in this uh, balancing and there's so much of it just naturally going on, natural and the honesty part, the radical honesty, actually helps take us from this amygdala part of what you were talking about, Mark, this thing where the amygdala is going, wild in the addiction the pfc prefrontal cortex has gone off board and this radical honesty is this concept where when we are so self-reflective like you are saying bonnie knowing me or even being asked the questions about you and being honest and talking about yourself in the most honest way um and i've heard this where you can try to go as many days in a row as you can without telling yourself a lie or anybody else. Number one, it's not an easy thing. And even because this is even those little white lies kind of thing, but the radical honesty helps quiet down the amygdala activity, brings about more of the prefrontal cortex, which adds to regulation, offsets dysregulation and really helps promote the, the healthy lifestyle and what we're trying to do with whatever behavior we're trying to manage more effectively. So with that, Mark, I wanted to ask you how that fits into your model and how if you've used that radical honesty in your practice over the years, particularly with the populations you've worked with.
3: Absolutely, in fact, that's part of what my 2nd book was about as well. Um, When I'm working with people with behavioral addictions, I work to teach them. Part of what I work to teach them is they have control over 5 things in life. You know, number 1 is what they choose to pay attention to. Uh, Number 2 is how they choose to interpret it and to me. The radical honesty falls under how do you choose to interpret something? Because most people see what they, they expect to see. Including from themselves. Yeah. And so. I want them to work at seeing things for what they are instead of interpreting what they're seeing at that point in time. So that's the honesty part of it. They're seeing their selves, their behavior for what it actually is mm-hmm. instead of having all these built in. Uh, excuses on why they do the things that they do and just just quickly. The 3rd thing I teach them is they have control over what they think. How they feel and then finally over their behavior, and that's the only 5 things that they have control over in life.
1: Yeah. Well, Linda can attest, we've heard that over the years, how we think, how we feel, how we respond. Is that resilience control mechanism? Yeah. And it definitely overlaps into the addictions world.
0: And I just love to hear a little bit more from each of you. So, you know, we're hearing a lot about how people are so attached to their phones and they, they would rather get shocked and be alone with their own thoughts and some of those types of things. So I'd love to hear from each of you, how do you work with your patients or how do you work with your clients to get comfortable with that, to get comfortable with some of the feelings and to not be, you know, subduing it with some kind of behavior? Um, Where do you start with people?
2: I can go first. I I like starting with adding things in building um, a framework that they can then rely on. So I use a lot of energy based tools, but breath work is one thing. I want to teach people how to breathe and how to breathe. Well, I want to, I love meditation. And I, I, if I had a buck for everybody who said to me, I'm terrible at meditation. No, they're not. They're not. We're all distractible squirrel, you know, Um, but, but, having them put if they're going to be on their phone having them put something like insight timer on their phone and do meditation periodically during the day a two-minute meditation a three minute meditation let's just get started get off the judgment seat let's practice you'll get to the point where this gets better I, I always tell them practice makes adequate we are not shooting for perfect here people we're just shooting for adequate good enough So I I want to give them some tools. These are some things. And then the number one thing I I tell them is, and you're going to forget to use them. So now let's figure out how you're going to remind yourself to use your tools. Because they get this sheepish look on their face. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. (laughs) It just is.
0: And and I love what you're saying about meditation, buddy. Because I've said that to many people over the years, too. I used to think, oh, I can't meditate. I have too many things in my head, blah, blah, blah. And what people often don't realize is that that's the gift of meditation is to try and give yourself a moment or two to just focus on the breathing. Of course, thoughts are going to come and go. Of course, they are. But you just keep focusing on that breath and guaranteed you're going to feel better, whether you do it for 30 seconds, three minutes, five minutes, whatever whatever you can do. It really does reset our bodies in a totally different way.
3: Yes, I think that people really misunderstand meditation because what I teach a lot of my clients is walking meditation. You don't have to be sitting down or laying down to meditate. And that leads me into teaching them and working with them on becoming more mindful. Which is a huge part of my practice. I want people to be here now. And I would say 95% of the people I meet are either thinking about something that's already happened or worried about something that hasn't happened yet, but they're not here at the moment. It's kind of like driving home at night and realizing I don't remember any part of the drive. Because we're caught up in, in thinking about other things, so I work with them on being mindful, being in the moment.
0: Beautiful, love that. Be yes. would
1: add. Then is on my part is you know those things too, mindfulness practices, anything that we could add or sometimes even substitute to a behavior, um, breath, meditation. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for me, sometimes, especially in the addiction world when when i am working with someone with addiction it's the key is being being able to get your baseline of how well do you know the access to it the quantity um and and more than anything what consequences has it created for you how aware are you of them what do we want to do with them and can we do abstinence it's um most of what we know it's 30 days if we could have 30 days of abstinence from it, so that most of everything in our physiology is reset. And this gives us our baseline of how we can go from there. Anna Lemke is the one who actually came up with this intervention. It's widely used, but it's all based on resetting that physiological homeostatic state. But the other thing is understanding the system. I mean, a lot of the work that I do is is with families, too. And the work with them is, how did this happen? How did this get out of control? How did this go from this to this? And how did it escalate so quickly? And the other thing I run into a lot is, if he loved me, he wouldn't be doing this. Or if she loved me, she wouldn't be doing this. And it's, no, they love you you are loved this isn't love it this is a physiological thing that we have to work at overcoming it's mental it's physical there's so much to it it isn't just if i could stop i would because i love you it's we need something more and that's why the interventions that you're talking about are so helpful and thank that's you nice. for
0: sharing that charles because i think I think people sometimes often feel guilty like they, they think it's on them that they aren't able to fix the problem. So, so thank you for saying that. Uh, and you have a-
1: fixing them. Right. Know, sometimes it's, you know, I did everything I could. I wanted this to happen. I told him this, I told her that. And if it's their children, both parents, but you know, the person really wants to have to do it as much as the family member or the one of the greatest authors on this work on behavioral change james prashaska states that he wrote the book and dedicated his life to understanding how and why and when people change because his family did everything they could to stop their father from drinking and smoking himself to death and they weren't successful he died and when he died He said, that was my catalyst. I got to understand this better. And help people
3: to be able to make the changes that they may
1: want to make in their lives.
3: Absolutely to, to go along with that. I remember having a conversation with another therapist that it doesn't really matter what type of addiction. That people who have an addiction problem appear to be a narcissistic personality disorder in many ways.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, we have um, just about four minutes left, and uh, I want to make sure if anyone has a question for Charles, Mark, or Bonnie, please uh, put that in the chat. We would love to hear if you have questions. While we're doing that, I did want to touch for a moment um, on something that Bonnie has going on uh, in uh, just a little bit to the south of us here at Bellin. Uh, She's working on something really exciting called uh, the intentional community. So Bonnie, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that,
2: we would love to hear about that cool awesome well so this came up about three or four years ago I've been taking a ton of training on it um the gist of it is many of us are very isolated and um just one little quick thing in Wisconsin 29 percent of people over 65 live alone and maybe at risk for social isolation limited access to support inadequate assistance We know the trifecta, we have the senior housing, we have assisted living and we have nursing homes. This is a different model. This model has been around for many decades, very well established on the coasts, not very well established in the Midwest at all. But the gist of it is you build a sustainable community that it's a neighborhood design that fosters people knowing each other. If, you, if I ask people, how many of your neighbors do you actually know by name? How much time do you spend with your neighbors? You know, in the past, if a farmer got injured, all the other farmers would come and help with whatever needed done on that farm. We don't have a whole lot of that anymore. Um, there was one story told where someone, the way they found out he was dead, was he hadn't been moving his car from one side of the road to the other, the way he was supposed to. We need things to be different than that. We need, as we address loneliness, I'm I'm going to predict for us that we will see addictions come down. When we are woven into a fabric, a community that that holds us, we're not going to need as much of that addictive kind of behavior. So what I am doing is I'm actually hosting a conversation on Friday, March 24th. Here in Appleton, um, I don't tell people where because I want to make sure they register, <laughs> because I want to make sure I have enough room for everybody. But we're going to have a conversation about creating an intentional community in this area, and it's going to it's going to help the single parent whose six-year-old is getting off the bus and they're stuck at work. It's going to help the older person who can't do some household things anymore but can have a neighbor come over and do it. There's gonna be community space where everyone can get together and share a meal now and then. So this is initial conversation. This is not a quick process. It usually takes two to five years, but I wanna get it started. So if people are interested in coming for that informational meeting, they can either call me. So my number is 920-606-8734, or they can send me an email at Bonnie, the at symbol, empowerment and but I'd love to just have a conversation with people even if someone decides nope that's not for me or it's not for me now that's fine because they might know someone for whom it would be a timely
0: thing I think it's so exciting Bonnie to think of the potential behind that because I, I think about so many people in my life that I feel like they would so benefit from just being more connected to more people and we look at all the dimensions of well-being that we talk about and how that helps people emotionally and socially and all the wonderful things that come along. So if anyone uh, needs Bonnie's number or email, feel free to reach out to me, too, and I will I will get you connected. Uh, thank so you, thank you for sharing that, Bonnie. Really appreciate that. Uh, we are kind of running out of time here, but I do just want to get um, all of your final thoughts on, on what we discussed today. What do you want people to walk away with today as, as to how they can potentially be helped by our conversation today? And Charles, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, I guess the thing I would say is that self-awareness and intentionality, um, your own delir- being self, strategically self-aware, developmentally focused, intentional, purposeful, because as our experts today talked about, A lot of addictions start with some hurt and pain that you're working towards either covering up or something. But at the same time, there's so many things happening right now that like the phone, like Netflix, you don't have to have an addictive personality. You don't have something in you that needs to be fixed. The the most foremost addiction specialists that we know of became addicted to something. The people who made Pinterest, the people who've made the social media platforms, who even know what the addictive process is to it, couldn't overcome them. So we have so many things coming at us all at once vying for our attention. And the more we're engaged in them the more addictive we could become. So if anybody's thinking on this call, oh, I feel I'm addictive and I don't think that I'm overcompensating for anything, you may not be. There is, this is coming at us in every way. And there's, I was watching this one podcast and someone asked this specialist, is there anything that's not addictive these days? And the answer was, maybe not because there was, she said, I've even seen someone addicted to water. So all I want you to do is think, be aware, be self-aware, manage, and know the access, the amount of time you're spending on it. And if there's anything that's giving consequences to you that aren't positively impacting your life, that maybe it's time to look at that and be radically self-aware and even more honest with yourself. So that's what I would think would be great for people to think about.
0: Thanks, Charles, appreciate that. How about for you, Mark? Any parting thoughts for us today?
3: Well, two. First of all, I'd like to go back to what Bonnie was talking about in, uh, with our workshop. And uh, Dr. Cohen in his research on addiction said that um, another word for addiction is bonding. When people can't bond with other people, they bond with with drugs. Um, which I always found fascinating. Second of all, to me, it all starts with the inability to pro- process emotions. And I highly recommend people take a look at Daniel Siegel's research at UCLA on processing, on how to process feelings. Excellent,
0: excellent. Thank you for that. Great, great additional information for us to all dig into. And Bonnie, I, we will wrap it up with you. Final thoughts today. Yes.
2: Yeah, so, what I would just like to say to everybody is take heart please take heart. Don't feel like you are so far down the hole that there's no way that you can be dug out. Reach out to someone, own your own your stuff. We can empower you, we can help you. We can hold big space for you until you can hold big space for yourself.
0: And Bonnie, I always love the phrase that you use as kind of your tagline. Would you share that with our audience? I will
2: remember you are capable of far more than you think you are
0: I love that I love that I think we all it's so such a good reminder for all of us we're we're more capable than we think so oh got some hard emojis on that one Bonnie so (laughs) awesome well thank you to the three of you what a wonderful conversation today so much great information additional resources to check out in the future I really just wanna sincere gratitude to the three of you for, for being with us today and sharing so much with our audience and continuing to help us focus on our mental health and well being. It's so, so important and I'm I'm just so so blessed to be able to to do this work with all of you. So thank you to to the three of you for being with us today. Thank you to our audience for continuing to take the time to focus on your mental health. We appreciate that and uh, I hope you all have a great rest of the day. Thank you Awesome.
2: Bye. Thank you. Thanks
0: so much. bye-bye.
2: Take care.